It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the. And there's a. Now that's a follow up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow up question right there. If you can be physical and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame will hit practice number 10 of the spring on Saturday. It's a particularly important spring for the Irish wide receivers who will need consistent playmakers to emerge this fall. So to discuss wide receiver play, we reached out to someone who knows a little bit about having a breakout season at Notre Dame, and that's wide receiver Miles Boykin, who cashed in on a big-time effort in 2018 to become a third-round draft pick of the Baltimore Ravens. Miles, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Miles, I, I understand you were back on campus for Pro Day. What was it like to get back on campus and to to sort of be a part of that? Man, it was awesome. That was uh that was actually my first time back since uh, graduating. So you know, it was just good seeing the guys uh, that I played with when I was there. It was good seeing the coaches that you know I was there with as well. And you know, it's always just a good atmosphere to come back on campus. Miles, what was it like? playing in the NFL, trying to dodge COVID, and is it uh, – because there are a lot of – there are no cancellations, but there's a lot of funky stuff going on. And then uh, is it a little bit more normal now? Uh, not yet. I mean, uh, especially with all the uh, things going around, OTAs right now, so we don't really know what's happening with that. But, uh, no, I mean, it was it was probably exactly like the college season except – probably worse for the college players because they're around students every day. You know, we were just kind of around ourselves and uh, kind of working around that, you know, we social distance in the building, but you know, it was better for us just because we were around the same guys every day. We actually had the biggest breakout in the NFL, but you know, at the same time, it, it was just hard going through all that stuff. Cause I, there was at one point where I was on the COVID list. I never had COVID, but I was on the list. So I had to sit out for the whole week and then come back and play in the game on Sunday, which means I couldn't practice all week. All I could do was virtual meetings. So uh, it was definitely hectic, but, you know, we're hoping this year is a little bit more normal. Yeah, I think we're all we're all ready to get back to normal in all, every aspects of our lives. Um, I wanted to rewind a little bit back to um, before you had the breakout year that I mentioned earlier as a senior at Notre Dame. When, when did you get an idea that that was something that was possible and you felt confident that that was something that was going to happen? Um, I definitely felt after my sophomore year, I was, I was more than capable of, of playing and, you know, being a pro- productive member on the team. Um, even my, my sophomore year, I had, I played with a broken finger the whole season. Right. Uh, and I obviously registered in my freshman year. So I didn't really, wasn't really able to show what I you know was able to do until I was a junior. And even as a junior, I didn't really get to show what I was able to do until the last game that we played. Um, but for me, it was all about progression, you know, uh, I think uh, Coach Alexander, when he came in, he really helped me helped me with my development. And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I guess the rest is kind of history. But, you know, once I had my opportunity, I made the most of it. 
Well, it's interesting that you say that, and and the injury played a part in that because I think fans on the outside looking in, especially with the group they had last year, they're wondering why you know freshman Jordan Johnson didn't get in earlier, why it took you until your senior year to get a real opportunity. What what's the I guess what's the difficult part about making that climb up the depth chart as a young receiver? Um, I think it's truly a process at Notre Dame. You can't just be doing one thing right and expect to see the field. So I, I, I can speak in terms of myself, you know, as a freshman, you know, we, we was loaded in the receiver room when I was a freshman. When I was a sophomore, I finally started playing, but still wasn't, you know, I guess playing as much as I wanted to, but nobody's playing as much as they want to ever. You know, it doesn't matter if you miss one play, you're not playing as much as you want to. But uh, junior, I actually played probably less than my sophomore year until like the last couple games of the season. And then obviously the bowl game when uh, Equinemius got hurt. And so I was really kind of out there. We had some receivers out. So, um, you know, I was the main one out there. And then the next season, I just kind of built on that and was able to go in. And then even with Chase, you know, when I go and then Chase has an opportunity to step up and be the guy. And, you know, that's how, how it's kind of always worked, especially in our offense. You know, it's uh, Notre Dame's offense, especially when I was there, was a run-first offense. I mean, and hell, why wouldn't we want to run the ball? We got some of the best alignment in the country. Um, but it's just about in terms of working in that offense and, you know, being able to find your niche, you know, no matter what it is. You, you mentioned how Coach Alexander helped you um, sort of mature as a receiver and developed you. What what specifically do you would you point to as things that he really helped you accomplish throughout that that career path? Yeah, man, uh, Dell is one of the best receiver coaches I've ever had. And actually, I don't. He doesn't get enough credit at all. You know, it doesn't matter the year. It doesn't matter what happens. He always has the receivers ready to play. It doesn't matter what people think we have in the receiver room. He always has something to to prove, and he has that chip on his shoulder just like everybody else in the room. And I think Dell is somebody is just underrated completely because he does a lot in recruiting. He does a lot in development. You know, like I said, um, I can't say I'd be in the NFL without him, but, you know, just his attention to detail, the things that he brings to the game, the knowledge that he brings, um, he's just always there, you know. Um, it doesn't matter what time, you know, in the morning, at night, if you want to get a film session in, if you, you got questions, he's ready to answer. And he just makes sure the guys are on top of their, their stuff. Um, but that's that's one of the reasons why I am today. But like I say, Adele is not, appreciated enough you know in my eyes that's interesting because I'll tell you Miles I get probably asked about him as much as any assistant coach like what do you think he is like in terms of player development and I don't have the answer because we don't get to interview him very often um <laughs> seriously and, and and that's how sometimes you get to know somebody's philosophy and so forth so it's Interesting to hear you, you know, go to bat for him and talk about uh, how much he's helped your development. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you in terms of, again, going back to um, your time at Notre Dame is, you know, I think that at the beginning of the year, Brian Kelly talks a lot about having a pretty deep rotation. Then we kind of get into the year and it gets smaller and, um, is it just difficult to have a deep rotation? Is it is it because the quarterback needs to have the timing and chemistry better, or is it because the receivers benefit more from being on the field a lot and, and have a rhythm? What do you think kind of limits 
how deep a rotation can get. Yeah, uh, I think it's kind of both, um, okay. especially in college. So if you're not um, like from a quarterback's perspective, if I got a different receiver every time I look out there, I got to throw the ball six, seven different types of ways rather than I got these guys that I'm familiar with. And, you know, I know how they play. You know, I know where they're going to be. And that's easier said than done. But, I mean, that's from a quarterback perspective, that's how it could be, unless everybody's got to be perfect. Then you're asking the quarterback to be perfect in, in that situation. Um, when you have chemistry, nobody has to be perfect because everybody knows where, you know, what they're going to do. Like, I knew where Ian was going to throw the ball before he threw it. You know, a lot of times when I was out there, I knew the location he was going to have it. And I think a lot of receivers that played with Ian can say that. But, you know, if we're if I'm in every other series, I'm – not getting that chemistry that like I should. Then from a receiver perspective, uh, I, I know for myself, like if I'm only playing, you know, four plays here and then I come out and then another two plays and I come out, like it doesn't give me a chance to like actually get in a rhythm, you know, and just play free. And that's one of the biggest things about, um, especially in college, you know, these guys are, are, you know, so nervous when they go out there and they're just trying to not make a mistake and you know that's the wrong way to play you know a lot of the times you got to go out there to make plays not to make a mistake and so when you're not allowed to play freely and you're not allowed to you know calm yourself down and then getting you know getting that groove then that's when you see guys tense up and that's when you see guys you know kind of make mistakes out there miles sort of on the flip side of that you're certainly aware of the challenges of preparing for a season with a quarterback competition going on which is what Notre Dame has right now going into the season, obviously with Ian Book gone. How, how does that input impact you as a receiver and how do you make the most of that as a receiver? Um, to be honest, even when I was when I when I was there, when uh Ian and Brandon were battling it out, it, it sucked because I, I love both of those guys. Both of my, both of those guys are my close <laughs> friends. Right. So I had to, you know, I just did my job. I didn't even worry about what they was going through. I just said, listen, like I support both of y'all and you know, for me, I would just listen. I would just do me. And that's what Dell would always say in the receiver room. He's like, it's just about, you know, you guys doing your job. Don't worry about them. And as receivers, we preach ourselves constantly. We try to be perfect so the quarterback doesn't have to. Um, that's the biggest thing. If I mean, it is a team game, but at the same time, we try to be perfect before the quarterback has to be perfect. He got a lot of things he got to worry about. He got to worry about the protection. He's got to worry about getting the call out. He's got to worry about making the right read. All we got to do is run routes and catch the ball. So um, we got to be as perfect as we can in order to help the quarterbacks. So from that standpoint, I mean, um, it's up to them. You know, I, I think the receivers just got to go out there and do their job and the quarterbacks got to do theirs. And then at the end of the day, everything will fall in place. Miles, when I watch the um, – even today when I watch the Citrus Bowl catch, I kind of envision what's going through your mind because the, the body language is get out of my way. <laughs> and – I'm wondering what really was going through your head. The, the second part of my question is, that could have just been a neat moment in your career, and you turned it into a platform to step up and, and become a better player. So you that's exactly what those plays should be like. So what was the key to that? And then also, what was really going through your mind during that play? See, then that's, that's kind of what I alluded to earlier. Like, when I made that play, I wasn't thinking about anything i just think about making a play like that's what's to me that's the beauty of it you know i think you ask a lot of guys what what were they thinking in that moment it's just like all instinct you know and that's how it should be you should be playing off your instinct and not thinking about oh what is coach going to say to me if i do this or thinking about oh what are you know the fans going to say to me if i do that I mean, you just got to go out there and play so uh for me like that's literally the ex exact example i would have of that you know i wasn't thinking about anything other than trying to win the game 
Um, and then I saw like I had an opportunity, so I just had to, you know, had, had to go try to score. And uh, for me, just using that as as momentum to go into the next season, it was more of it was less of me like believing in myself, but just more of other people, you know, seeing what I was capable of and seeing what I could do. And then, you know, from there, I'm just kind of dedicating myself to the game, you know, being a student of the game with Dell and, you know, everything shakes itself out. That's one thing, you know, I'll say about a lot of Notre Dame receivers, you know, if you, you interview them, they're going to be smart guys. You know, when they get to the league, they know how to read coverages and that's all because of Dell. They know, you know, personnel, they know all that stuff because the study habits I got from Dell are the same study habits I use today in the league. Miles, I know you haven't been on campus much, like you mentioned, but I'm sure you, you still keep in touch and know some of the guys in the wide receiver room and certainly last year with some guys that, that played last year. What was it like to see the season that Javon McKinley had? Um, and then who are you maybe looking to have maybe breakout season this coming year? Man, I couldn't be happy for Javon. You know, I talked to my pro day and I was just I was man, I was so proud of him just because uh, he was only a year younger than me. So he came in and, you know, I, I got to see him grow from, you know, being that freshman, I, I got to see him make mistakes and at the end of the day become, you know, a young man that's going to have a chance to play in the NFL. And that's all you could ask for. And especially like if you guys know Javon, he's the greatest dude ever. You know, he's a great guy. And, uh, you know, people make mistakes. So at the end of the day, when stuff like that happens and you know those guys, like that's like my brother. So, I, you know, I treat him just like anybody else. Um, and like I said, you know, like I said, I'm just extremely proud of him. And I just can't wait to see what he does on this level. But uh, this year coming up, man, it's it's tough because for me, like I don't I don't know what Dell got up his sleeve. Like every year, it seemed like he got something. Like <laughs> somebody gonna pop off, somebody gonna do something, man. And uh, that's why I never I never doubt. I never look and be like, oh man, man, we ain't got no receivers. I never do that just because I know the type of coach Dell is, and I know he's gonna have the guys ready to go. I think. Lindsay and um, Austin might have been true freshmen when you were there, so you probably didn't get to see a ton of what they were, or at least what they are now. Oh, and I did. Adrian, Kevin, they can both ball. They can both okay. ball. Kevin, Kevin is another level when he's healthy. Man, he he could he could really play. Okay, can can he be a number one receiver? Can he have a kind of year like you had in twenty eighteen? Absolutely, if he's healthy, absolutely he could do that. Okay. But all those guys that that was probably one of the most talented receiving receiving groups that I've seen come in when I was there. Um, they were they were tough. Him, Keys, Joe, Braden, like they're 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 legit, man. If they could just stay healthy, then I got I got all the confidence in them in the world. Because when they came in as freshmen, we was like, man, they're gonna be something. Yeah, I think I think that's that's sort of the weird thing. Like both for fans and reporters, we sort of. We saw those guys coming in as freshmen. We thought they were talented and thought they would have more success than they've had to this point now. And then it's like, okay, now is, are they are they going to break out or, is it, or is, has their chance sort of passed them up? So I think that's always one of the inter interesting things about college football because those guys are still around, but um, you don't really know if uh, if there's another Miles Boykin season coming or um, if those guys maybe just aren't going to be able to put it together and um, un unfortunately it, don't, it doesn't work out for them. No, it's interesting because like I – I look back and I think about it. So like my recruiting class, we had EQ, me, Jalen Guyton, CJ Sanders, Chris Fink. Like all of us had a chance to like almost play in the league if we're not playing in the league now. So like mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy to think about in the year under us, we got Chase, Javon, you know, Javon going to play in the league, chasing the league right now, killing it. And I'm trying to think who was the class under that? I'm not. I'll, I'll have to look that up. But uh, 
I, one person I wanted to ask you about was who wasn't a receiver when he first came was Avery Davis. I mean, the guy's been all over the place. He's been a cornerback, a quarterback, a running back, had a pretty good season last year, and he's having a great spring. What are your thoughts on Avery Davis? Uh, AD, one of the most poised people I've ever been around. Dude's quiet. He just shows up and works, and he's confident, and that's, that's what I love about him, man. Uh, you know, never gets too high, never gets too low. And he, he could flat out ball. He's explosive. He, he, he's a baller, man. I, don't, I, I truly believe it doesn't matter what position you put him at. He's going to find a way to be successful. That receiver class that came in in 2017, that was Jafar Armstrong, who ended up playing, playing some running back in Notre Dame, <laughs> transferred to Illinois. And then uh, Michael Young, who ended up at uh, Cincinnati now and had some success last year for himself as well. So those were the receivers that um, were in that class. And, didn't last at Notre Dame in terms of making impacts um, at the receiver position, but um, still have chances to to uh, make their marks elsewhere. Uh, Miles, I wanted to ask you how the NFL uh, has been treating you. What has been what have, what have been the biggest challenges of, of playing in the NFL? Man, the biggest the biggest what having challenge? to do with all the COVID stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can't say COVID. Everyone went through that. Yeah. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge is probably just the speed of the game and how much different it is from college. Um, you go from playing in a system where it's hurry up to playing in a system where we huddle up every play. Um, I think the one thing that did prepare me for that is, you know, obviously I play for a team that's a run first team, like just like we were in college, but you just got to be ready when you, when your number's called to make a play. Um, but the margin is so much smaller in the NFL, but that's also what I love about it. You know, um, the margin to make mistakes is so much smaller in the NFL and, it really makes you like hone into every single snap, every single, you know, play, you know, every quarter is important. And uh, the, every, every, everything is intense about the NFL. And that's what I love about, it. you know, you don't necessarily have those games where you're going to blow people out by 30, 40. Now I was fortunate enough, my rookie year, I was on a team that was, you know, we were very good one, 12 games straight, you know, um, unfortunately we lost in the playoffs, but this year we got our first playoff win. So we're just looking to, you know, take a step every year and improve every year. But, you know, I love this team. and I love this organization. What's it like playing with Lamar Jackson? He's the most electric football player I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> he's he's found his way out of so many things that I've just it's it's crazy. You know, they'll send a cover zero blitz and he'll find a way to escape it somehow and then scramble for 30, 40 yards. And then the same thing will happen. He'll throw a 40, 50 yard touchdown. Like it's crazy the things that he can do. You know, I've never played with a football player like that. You know, I played with dual threat quarterbacks, but it's it's different when you say dual threat when you think about Lamar. Miles, obviously we've talked about how you had sort of the time to progress in your time at Notre Dame. Is is the pressure different in the NFL where if you feel like, okay, if I don't have uh, – uh, make some, some significant grounds in this next season, then who knows what's what's coming next for me? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's every year, though. That's every game. That's every snap, you know, like I said. But that's just the nature of the NFL. I mean, there's always pressure just because, you know, nothing's guaranteed. So, uh for me, like you're just thankful for every snap that you get. You're always working to get better, and uh, you really don't. You just got to work hard. Don't leave anything up to chance. You know, uh, I'm confident in my ability, and you know, just like you said, you know, you never know, you know, what the future holds for you. So it's not like you're on a four-year scholarship. We're on contracts that can, you know, you can be cut at any moment. But uh, like I said, you know, I, I love the place I'm at. You know, I love my teammates, and I love the organization. I'm just happy to, you know, be able to go to work for them. Miles, I got to be honest with you. I hope you're not mad at me. When you ran your time in the combine, I was surprised, and I think a lot of us were. And I guess we shouldn't have been. Uh, but but 
I mean, did you know all the all along this was coming? Did you know all along you were going to blow people away with your forty time at the combine? Yeah, but it, it's it's kind of crazy because um, I knew what I was going to do. My teammates knew what I was going to do, but uh, it was like kind of more fans that didn't think I was faster at all or anything. And it was like I was just like, all right. I mean, it is what it is. But then when I got to the combine and we're talking to coaches before, they always ask like, oh, what do you think you're going to run? What do you think? Uh, what do you think your uh, times are going to be? And, you know, I would just I, I was just trying not to say anything because I wanted them to be just as shocked as, you know, everyone else was going to be. And I was just like, yeah, I don't really know. And they'll be like, yeah, like, we got you in the low four four range. That's what we think you're going to run. So, I mean, they'd be doing their math. I don't know how they how they figure that stuff out, but like, <laughs> they they knew they, they have better sources than the fans do. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Miles, that's all we have for you. We appreciate you taking some time to join us today and sharing your insight about uh, playing wide receiver. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. All right, now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Since uh, Miles Boykin was our guest today, let's do some Boykin-themed props using his stats from his senior season in 2018. Uh, so the first one I have for us, Eric, is will any Notre Dame player have more than 59 catches this season? You know, the, I mean, the most last year was 42. I mean, but it happens more than you think. Um, but usually there's just one guy that that is up there that gets it. And who would be that guy? You know, I think Kevin Austin and, and Michael Mayer are the only two that kind of have that potential. My sense is, though, Avery Davis and Lindsay are just going to be, and these other guys are going to be too used too often especially for a wide receiver to get to 59. So I'm going to say no. Yeah, I went with no as well. I mean, could Kevin Austin be that? Maybe. I mean, we think he's that talented, but obviously that's that's quite the leap of what he's been able to accomplish throughout his career. Um, I, I If we wanted to extend beyond receivers, could Michael Mayer go crazy? I mean, maybe. Um, Eifert had Tyler Eifert had 63 catches in 2011. That was the single season record. So he'd have to approach single season record or program record um, to reach those numbers. Um, I did look. Uh, Quintez Cephas had 59 receptions, same number uh, at Wisconsin with Jack Cohn in, in 2019. So um, obviously Jack Cohn isn't afraid to sort of um, have that one guy. Um, but so so if if one guy emerges. I think that is possible, but I'm just not too positive or, or uh, convinced yet. I mean, it's hard to be convinced us when we don't get to see much uh, that that uh, that there will be a person that will emerge um, to that level this season. So I'm going to go with no as well. Um, next one: Will anyone finish with more than 872 receiving yards? You know, probably for the same reasons. I'm going to say no with that one without going into too much detail. Yeah, I'm going to go no as well. Miles um, Boykin uh, didn't have like crazy um, yards per catch average, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, so maybe that uh, is more attainable for someone that if you don't get to 59 catches, if maybe if you're only at like 50 catches, you can still surpass that amount of receiving yards, especially if if guys like Kevin Austin or Braden Lindsey um, are deep threats, maybe they can pile up receiving yards, but I'm going to go no as well. Will anyone finish with more than eight touchdown receptions? You know, I was a little bit torn on this. Um, Notre Dame is playing uh, four teams that 
finished 90th or worse in pass efficiency defense last year and six more that finished 50th or worse or 60th or worse. So they're not playing very many good pass defenses. There's two, Wisconsin and Cincinnati. So those opportunities are going to be there. It was weird last year. They only had 15 touchdown receptions um, as as opposed to 37 the year before with the same quarterback. And a big difference was red zone. Um, again, is it too split up for somebody to get eight? Is it too... Uh, Bill Mallory used to call it mayonnaise. They had a mayonnaise attack because it was spread all over. Um, <laughs> I, I think somebody will get that because I think Michael Mayer in the red zone is going to be a guy that's going to be able to get that number. Yeah, I, I went with yes as well with Michael Mayer being the guy I had in mind. I just think that he's going to be um, a focal point of this offense and especially in the red zone. Um, and uh, I think that, they would be silly to not try to utilize him in that way. So I think uh, I think it's within um, within reach for Michael Mayer to be able to get more than eight touchdowns this season. Will anyone catch more than two touchdowns in a game? I don't. I went ahead and said yes to this, and I based it on the number of below average to very below <laughs> average defenses they're facing. The reason being there's going to be some really bad matchups for the other teams in, in those where you can kind of pick on a certain player. Right. Where I think that opportunity would be there. I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet money on it, but, <laughs> but um, for the purposes of this show, I will go ahead and bet and say, yes. <laughs> You'll bet your, your uh, reputation, your place, your bets reputation on it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with no, um, I think there will probably be some guys that do have two touchdown games, but I'm not sure that anyone will get to that three touchdown mark. Um, so I, I will go with no. And lastly, will anyone with 30 plus catches average more than 14.8 yards per catch? Well, I think McKinley was there last year. I don't. I, it was. You know, when you have. Yeah, he, he actually, Javon had 17.1 per catch. And the year before, Chase Claypool had 15.7. So Javon had a pretty good yards per catch. Uh, number comparatively yeah I, I think the the one year that you know you, that it wasn't possible that somebody was going to get that was 2013 Reese's last year as a starter you know that year his arm strength wasn't very good Michael Floyd had a zillion catches and average I think maybe 11 yards a catch but I think that's very I, I think Avery Davis could get that this year so um so I'm going to say yes. I, I think that's very attainable. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with yes as well. Um, I, I think especially if Braden Lindsay is anything what he anything close to what he can be as a healthy receiver, I think his yards per catch will be a, a pretty decent number over the 15-yard mark. Um, I, I, I think uh, whether it's Kevin Austin or even if like someone like Joe Wilkins has an impressive year, I still think whoever that guy is, I think that they'll be able to get over that 14.8 yards per catch mark. Um, so I think that, uh, Lindsay, if he's healthy easily, right. Yeah. You would, you would think so. Um, but, uh, you never know. Yeah. Health, health isn't always uh promise. And certainly, I mean, if, if he, if other guys maybe surpass him, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm really ready to, to witness sort of anything, 
and be skeptical of anything when it comes to the receiver position this coming year. I'm not really sure how it's going to play out, and I think that's uh, that's why we wanted to spend so much time talking about it today. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys – are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Coffee Dark Roast. Our coaches low-key regretting that Jack Cohn transferred after seeing the way Drew Pine has played. Is Brendan Clark on campus and involved in QB meetings, or his or is his foot out the door? Um, I would say in no universe are they regretting having Jack Cohn on the roster. Even if he were to get beat out, what a great backup that would be. What a great insurance policy that would be. You need more than one quarterback who's playing well to to make it through the season. I you know I, I realize we don't have we probably won't have COVID at least to the level we had last year. But I mean you know Trevor Lawrence had to step out and DJ had to play a couple of games. DJ U had to play a couple of games. Ui um, Angelale. Yeah, la 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 la. Um, <laughs> so. He played a couple of games, and they were tight games. They lost one in overtime, and then Phil Jakovic and Boston College the week before almost took them down. So you better have somebody else that can play. You know, Brendan Clark, uh, we saw actually a picture of him. Um, his personal quarterbacks coach back in um, on the East Coast tweeted out a picture of him in practice, not in pads, but – kind of throwing. Yeah, he's very involved. I mean, he'd love to get, once his knee is healed, he'd love to get back into the quarterback mix. He's missing some really valuable time, and that's going to make the climb difficult. But, um, you know, I don't anticipate him wanting to transfer, certainly before the season. You know, maybe after the season, if things look different and he doesn't see that he's got a fair shot to compete for the job in 2022. But my thought is that they would open that up and, and let him compete and see who the best quarterback is. And they were, he was highly thought of enough that he was their number two quarterback last year. So um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't press the transfer portal button yet. I know it's a new thing with the no sitting out, uh, but I think, you know, Brendan has a pretty good head on his shoulder. The one thing about these kids at Notre Dame too is a lot of times when they transfer, they don't like to do that until they have that degree. They'll kind of take some extra classes to get their degree and, and leave as a grad transfer early. Yeah, I think uh, this question to me, it seemed like it was uh, based in some, maybe some overreactions or I'm not sure how much coffee dark roast was, was tuned into um, the updates throughout the spring. Like he was drinking Irish coffee. <laughs> it's uh, like Brandon Clark is injured. That's why he's not involved in the quarterback competition. He had knee surgery. So um, I, there's not much that uh, would change how, how, the, I mean, him not being involved with the, the quarterback competition isn't because that Notre Dame doesn't ha- think he has a bright future or whatnot. Um and in terms, I'm not sure what it would take for them to regret bringing Jack Cohn in. I think, I guess maybe if if you brought Cohn in and Buckner won the starting job, and then both you alienated both Drew Pine and 
Brendan Clark and those guys both leave, maybe that would be a, a bad situation because then you're, then you're basically left with Buckner and no one else and Ron Paulus. Uh, so then I, I, that would maybe be something you could regret, but I, I, I don't think that they ever necessarily anticipated that happening. I think um, Tommy Reese even spoke to how he felt that the, the, the quarterbacks were welcoming of Jack Cohn into the room and understood the leadership that he could bring to that position. Whether or not he won a starting job or not, they felt that they, there was things that they could learn from him. So I, I also I'm not sure that Drew Pine is playing as well as your interpret. I mean, the way that uh, the question was posed made it seem like Drew Pine was like the for sure starter now, um, and I'm not sure that that's that's the case. I think um, I still anticipate that um, Jack Cohn will end up winning that job, but um, the fact that they're encouraged by how Drew Pine has looked. Um, this spring is certainly important, and they need to have that backup quarterback, like you mentioned. You know, the other thing, and I was just trying to look this up, but there's also a threshold in terms of how deep into the spring or summer you can go transfer and not have to sit out. There, there's a, It's different this first year. I want to say it's July 1st, and I think then it reverts to May in future years. I'll double-check that. But – so again, if if you lose the job in August, it's not like you can transfer somewhere and then just jump onto their team and be playing next year. You have you will have had to make your transfer before that point, before August. Yeah, yeah, you can't transfer in like halfway through camp and then be the starting quarterback at that place. <laughs> um, next uh, question we have is from uh, Bobby Bancroft at Bobby Bancroft, which. Uh, I really like that name for some reason with all of the question marks on this team that's likely rebuilding. Could a case be made that a grad transfer quarterback actually hurts the future? I.e. when Andy is contending for a playoff berth again, Jack Cohn wouldn't be there. So why not get a younger quarterback the experience now? You know, maybe he's related to Ann Bancroft, which we know is our favorite <laughs> um, analogy that comes up in stories. Uh, so, First of all, I'm going to nitpick on the rebuilding year. Um, I think just because there's a lot of uncertainty doesn't mean it's a rebuilding year. And Notre Dame is going to be in the preseason top 10 next year. Mark it down. Um, they're going to be a preseason top 10 team unless there's just an incredible rash of injuries uh, during the spring, debilitating injuries. So, um but but I really have a problem with playing for another season because when you look at 2012, 2018, and 2020, in none of those three years was Notre Dame supposed to be a playoff or a national championship game team. 2012, they were unranked uh, going into the season. And Really, the thought going into that season was that the 2013 team was going to be the one that could make a, a run if Notre Dame was ever going to make a run, and then 2012 doesn't. So I, I don't think you can ever do that. And I don't think it's fair to your upperclassmen who have worked their butts off. And then what if what if you play a younger quarterback and you have a losing record? Um, does that take away from kind of the – uh, momentum Brian Kelly has in terms of recruiting and, and other things. I, I just think it's a bad idea all the way around. Those guys will still be able to progress. I think they'll get a lot from being around Jack Cohn as well. The way he handles himself, just, just his knowledge and learning. I think it's an ideal situation having him on the roster. 
Yeah, this is a question that I've seen sort of thrown around on Twitter or message boards more as of late than I can remember in the past. I I, I think I, my guess is that it's related to like what folks see in professional sports more often where sort of tanking is like a, a thing that is, is a reality. And, uh, but this isn't, this isn't the NFL. Like if you don't have a good season this year, you don't get a, a better draft pick for next year. Um, you have to recruit based off of your record. Um, so I think the premise of Notre Dame abandoning its playoffs hopes, uh, its playoff hopes before the season even starts seems um, pretty crazy to me. I, I, I don't, I can't imagine the coaches ever feeling that way. The players ever feeling that way. Um, Cause they want to win and recruits want to play for programs that win. So I, I, my, my question for anyone that's posing this is like, do we have examples of this working elsewhere? And not that that means you can't, I mean, someone's got to be the first one to do it if it's going to work. But I, I just like the Brian Kelly's job is to put the quarterback that is puts Notre Dame in the best position to win games on a game to game basis on the field. Um, and so that's what he's going to do. Um, I, I just can't foresee it. And I, I mean, if, if the season starts poorly, if Jack Cohn starts the season, they lose three of the first six games or something like that, then maybe it's different. Maybe you throw other guys in there because it's not working. But I think you you give the guys the chance that you think have given you the best chance to win. And then if that doesn't prove that way, then maybe you make adjustments. But I can't imagine going into a season feeling that way about your team because the way Notre Dame recruits now, we all we all know that Notre Dame can recruit better. But the way they recruit, they should have enough talent on the team to be able to compete and win 10 games on an annual basis regarding – regardless of how many players they lose um, from the previous season, whether they lose a three-year starting quarterback or not. Going back to the the um, one detail about the transferring, it is July 1st this year only that you have to determine whether you're going to transfer and not have to sit out. In future years, it'll be May 1st. Okay. So, um, so, you know, if it were this year, you would have to decide during the blue gold game whether you're transferring or not <laughs> at, at halftime. Like, okay, yeah. I, yeah, this isn't going to work out for me. I better, better, uh, better get out of here. Uh, that would be that's that's a funny concept. But uh, obviously, they don't anticipate spring games lasting into into May in the future. Um, next question is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan Thirteen. What is going to be the most exciting position group in the fall from a playmaking perspective, aside from quarterback? Well, I'm assuming by the way he phrased that, he means an offensive group. That was my interpretation as well. Okay, so that's how I answered it. I would say the running backs. I, I think Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree, and I even think some of the – I'm Audric Estime. I, I'm really interested to see how a 6'1", 215-pound back kind of fits into that. And I'm not writing, writing off Sebo, Flemister, or Logan Diggs. I just think that's a fun – position group. I think the most intriguing are the wide receivers. I don't know that they're going to be the most electric or dynamic, but they're going to be the most fun to watch because we really don't know what's going to happen with them. There's just a ton of talent and speed and a zillion question marks um, and all kinds of injury history. So that's going to be fun to see how that turns out. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, we, we interpreted the question the same way and interpreted our answers the same way. I, I went with running back as well. I think their versatility is something that will be of great value to the offense with Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree. Um, I'm a big Audric Estime fan as well. Um, so I think uh, that'll be interesting to see how they use the running back group this year. Um, 
certainly the wide receiver group has maybe the potential to be the most exciting position group, but it also could be the most frustrating too, um, which is, uh, that that is certainly on the table as well. So I think if you're predicting what's most likely to happen, I would think the running backs, um, I th- even though we want to talk about receivers and figure out what, what Notre Dame is going to do at the receiver position and like some of the guys that are um, expected to maybe have a chance to take that leap at the receiver position, I think the best bet is the, is the running back group. Next question is from Ted at TLC underscore the underscore three. What is used more next season? Zero personnel or 22 personnel? Uh, Ted was drinking the Irish coffee too. Um, <laughs> I don't think either will be used a ton. I, if, if, it can include a running back as one of the people that are split out as a wide receiver, then that would be my answer. So if you, if, if Jack Cohn's sitting there and he's got either Kyron or Tyree in the backfield and he motions uh, Tyree or Kyron to go out wide and line up in a slot and there's five wide receivers at that point, then I'd say that's the answer. If that's not an option, boy, I don't know why you wouldn't want, either one of those guys on the field uh, on a certain play because they're such good receivers, I would go with the other alternative, but I, you know, because I think Notre Dame is going to use more two backs. I just don't know how much they're going to use two tight ends. Right. And certainly two tight ends and two running backs at the same time and one wide receiver. uh, I mean, maybe in the red zone, but so that's my answer. I, I think Ted asked the question, knowing that whatever the answer would be that it's not likely to be like a staple of the offense necessarily. I mean, I don't think he's expecting Notre Dame to do a lot of five wide receivers or a lot of 22 personnel, but um, I think that if I had to guess which one it would be used more, I would be 22 personnel. I, I don't think they ran five zero personnel at all last season. I mean, I actually tracked that. So I'm, I'm confident they didn't do that. Um, and that would be even be if you even if you wanted to count running backs as wide receivers, I don't even think they did that. But I, that's not how I count personnel. It's to me, it's the people rather than where they're lining up. So okay. if if Tommy Tremble and uh, Michael Mayer are lined up in the slot, to me that's still two a tight end, a two okay. tight end um, formation. Even though that uh, they're not lined up attached to the to line of scrimmage or anything. But um, so Notre Dame did use. Uh, two running backs for 25 plays up by my count last season. Um, the starting offense, at least, I don't really track when the backups are in late in the game. Um, but uh, I did, they used it so few times that I, did, I didn't even distinguish in my season totals at the end of the year what between 21 or 22 personnel. So I, if if they use that, I don't expect that number to be too high. Like you mentioned, I, I think they can use some two wide receivers personnel groupings or two running back personnel groupings, but I, I would anticipate them not having two tight ends on the field when they did that this year. So um, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I just don't know that, uh, or an interesting question, um, uh, I, but I would, I would lean heavily towards the 22 personnel being more frequently used. Next question is from at D.O. Carroll one. How many different offensive linemen will get a start for Notre Dame next year? Well, I would say the goal would be to start just five. That's what they generally like to do. And usually if there's additional people, it's because of injury. So I'll say six, figuring there's going to be an injury at some point that knocks somebody out of a start. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I didn't go back and look, but I think off the top of my head, would, would last year's number probably be eight, I think, because that was the number I actually settled on was eight. Because um, because Z Carell well, Lug and Carell um, would would have been added to the. Yeah, so I guess it probably was only seven. Yeah, because Lug played two spots. Right. And he did when he played center. They yeah, okay, did Dylan Gibbons came in in a and played a lot in one game, but I don't think he started. Yeah, yeah, he definitely played. He played against Florida State because Aaron Banks moved out to left tackle for a bit, um, and then uh, uh, when Liam had his eye issue, but then he came back on. And then Dylan played in another game too, I believe. But but anyways, we're getting a little bit off track. I, I, I think. So just using that for, as an example, that was a successful offensive line last year, and they had seven starters. Um, so I, I think you're it was seven the year before too, with um, Ruland and Lug having to come in for injuries. Yeah, so you, I, I think you, and you, and you're, the guys that you're talking about on this offensive line, those guys have dealt with injuries too. Obviously, Jared Patterson's coming off a foot injury. Um, Josh Lug has dealt with some issues. Um, Dylan Gibbons has dealt with foot issues. See, those haven't been as uh, relevant to being on the field because he hasn't been a starter but um if he's get projected to be a starter this year that that could be something to watch so um i think and z carell had an ankle injury um last year when he came in so i think you're you're always going to have at least six due to an injury here or there um and then i think there's a chance that they move guys in or out based on uh, performance um because i'm not sure that they're going to be 100 percent certain that the five guys that they run out there to start the season against Florida state will be the, the best five guys to, that they'll want to run out there at the end of the season either. So um, I, of course I made an offensive lineman question go long, but uh, my answer for this one is eight. Uh, next question is from Chris Scheiber at Scheib 43 gaze into your crystal balls here. Early returns based on interviews and video are really positive on Marcus Freeman. Given his previous success and ra- raising his profile in South Bend, is a two-year tenure most realistic? I feel like anything longer means the D is underperforming. <laughs> the end part of that was the part that got me a little bit. Um, so he, I, I get this question a lot in my live chats about how long Marcus Freeman is going to stay. Here's what I would do. I would just enjoy his time here and not worry about that. <laughs> Seriously, because people are so tied up in what's going to happen after Marcus Freeman. I know. This guy hasn't coached the game yet, and we're calculating when he's leaving. Well, uh, I mean, it's the same like, well, how many games does Clark Lee have to win to be the next head coach at Notre Dame? Like, yeah. Well, come on. <laughs> I know. I, I It's like just enjoy the fact that he's here and he's doing really well in recruiting, and I think he's going to do really well in the field. But to answer your question, you know, I kind of went and looked at some of the top defensive coordinators in college football in the last few years and what their kind of trajectory was. And, you know, I mean, you got Brett Venables at Clemson, who's been at Clemson since 2012. So he's neither a failure as a defensive coordinator or, nor, (laughs) you know, and, and the defense then, isn't underperforming now. Yeah. Right. Then you had Dave Aranda. He was at LSU for four years uh, before he took the Baylor job. You have Justin Leonard at Wisconsin. He's been there for four years as the coordinator, and he gets a lot of offers. Um, you had Kirby Smart, who was with Alabama for eight years before he took the Georgia job. 
And then the, the one guy that probably fit what you're thinking about is Justin Wilcox, who was like two, 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 one in terms of where he stayed before he took the Cal job. It's it's all a matter of what how high Marcus Freeman wants to aim. I mean, if he wants to take a lower level group of five job where there's not a lot of great resources, he could have a head coaching job next year. He could add it this year. Right. But if you're Marcus Freeman, I think you're good enough to not only get a power five job, but get a decent power five job if you stay long enough and show a track record of recruiting and excellence on the field. And, and Notre Dame's not a bad place to be while that's happening. Right. You know, he's get paid. He loves the Midwest. Um, and so I think he's going to want to be selective. That's what Dave Aranda did with his, you know, head coaching thing was, you know, he waited until there was a big 12 job or well, and not necessarily a big 12 job, but a, a power five job where there was some success in winning at Baylor. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, definitely not consider him a failure if he stays longer than or unimpressive or underachieving if he stays longer than two years. Yeah. Uh, despite how the question, the end of the question was posed, I still think that the main point of it being two year, two years at Notre Dame for Marcus Freeman being the most realistic, I think that's probably right. Um, I think one year wouldn't be too surprising if the right head coaching opportunity comes along. Um, but I, I think probably the most realistic, as, as, he, as he posed, Chris posed, that two, two years is probably the most realistic, that he, he kind of proves what he can do, kind of surveys the market and decides to maybe stay another year um, and then leave. I think that, that if you're get, trying to put a bet on whether uh, he makes it beyond that, I think that's probably the end point you could forecast. But, yeah, I, I, him, his, him, the length of his stay is probably going to have more to do with whether or not he wants to leave for a head coaching job uh, rather than like the success of the defensive unit um, unless he seriously underachieves and everyone is misreading his, reading his success um, then uh, uh, he, he's just gonna be able to have a successful stay at Notre Dame and even if they don't play as well as Clark Lee's defense played last year or the year before he's still gonna have those head coaching opportunities I don't think that's going to prevent him um, from having head coaching opportunities so um, he's going to stay a popular name in the coaching carousel, um, and uh, I think, like you, like you, like you started, like just enjoy it while it lasts, and don't worry like when it's going to end because we have no idea who the next guy could be in line to be the next defensive coordinator after that, and it could be some guy that we were not thinking of because we certainly weren't thinking of Marcus Freeman being in the next defensive coordinator at Notre Dame when Clark Lee was promoted to defensive coordinator. So, yeah, I mean. Mike Elko left to go to Texas A&M in part because he thought it'd be a faster track to becoming a head coach. And it's interesting that a successor, Clark Lee, made it to a power right. five job first. So you just never know. We got another question from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. General thoughts on ESPN's FPI rankings. FPI rankings are what happens when you pour beer into a computer. <laughs> um, it, it's, you know, you're, you're kind of going through them. And, and I looked at this year's and last year's and the year before, and you're just kind of like, okay, this makes sense. Makes sense. Whoa. What's going on here? Um, Notre Dame is ranked 11th in the 2021 FPI rankings. 
Cincinnati, who's a consensus top 10 team next year, is 27th. Then you have, and I, I'm not going to say Michigan is going to be a world beater, but they have Michigan ranked below Arkansas, Virginia, Tulane, and Wake Forest. I don't think any of that's happening. Um, and then when you look at the 2020 rankings, they had Wisconsin ranked ninth, a four and three Wisconsin team way ahead of Indiana, a team that beat them head to head and was clearly better than them. So I don't know what the algorithm is with the FPI, but there's a lot of head scratching um, things. It makes us and the AP voters look a lot smarter. So I hope the FPI stays around. You know, I, I, I did the same thing as you in terms of looking back at the last three years of the, the preseason FPI from like the spring FPI um, and sort of how they matched up with what the final AP poll was. Um, and it wasn't, I mean, each time they had five of the top five, five or six of the top 10 teams. Correct. I mean, not in the right order necessarily, but five. Well, I mean, it's easy to get three of them. I mean, you just put Alabama, Clemson, Ohio state. <laughs> right. No, no, no. I, I, I get it. Yeah. But the, the, the thing I was getting at, but I didn't take the time. I didn't get a chance to look at like, okay. What was the preseason AP top 25 or top 10 and how did that compare? I'm not sure how much better the FPI has, as a, uh, fared than the AP. I think one thing that FPI, I think can, uh, I did a good job is, I mean, the, in 2019, they were, they had LSU fourth and that's the year LSU won the national championship. I don't know where the AP poll had them, but I, I think that um, that wasn't necessarily, a, I don't know that people went into that season thinking LSU was going to dominate the way they did. And obviously FPI didn't have them number one, but it had them pretty high. So that's, that, that was a good thing for the FPI, but I, I, I appreciate the goal of the FPI. Um, I don't think it's always properly used. And I think people maybe overreact to it sometimes. And um, it's just another ranking system. And uh, I think pe people have the same opinions about the AP poll. Some people really like it. Some people can't stand it. And some people um, put too much weight in it. And some people think it doesn't mean anything. And there's just uh, all, all polls and, and rankings are going to be polarizing, um, especially when you're doing them this far out from the season. <laughs> uh, so I think uh, I, it's not something I put a lot of weight into. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested to see like what, what, what they project. And I think some of it has to do with like returning starters and that, that really impacts um, where, where you're projected. And obviously like at this point in the spring, there's, there's a lot of things that are going to happen for all these teams before even fall camp starts. So I think um, there's lots of things that could change between now and then. So most, most top 10 lists or top 25 lists that you're making now um, are going to have some um, interesting interesting names in it when you go back and look at them in, in hindsight. Uh, next question we have is from Justin at The Real Putnam. What's the biggest thing the national media gets wrong about Notre Dame? I would say consistently over decades, it's that if Notre Dame lowered its academic standards, the quality of football would go up significantly and the reason that I don't think that that is a very smart thing to think is because you can lower the admission standards, but you still have to survive in the classroom. So you can let somebody in, and if they're gone by the end of the second semester, what good did it do to have, have them on campus for that year? Um, so I, I would say that. I, I think that's an oversimplification 
And I think the fact that Notre Dame's been in the college football playoff two of the last three years is evidence that that's not the case because the academic standards haven't changed. Yeah, I, I think that that's a good one. I, I guess I, I'm never a huge fan of like lumping the national media into with each other. Everyone has its own opinions and uh, its own quality and its own values. Uh, so, I mean, there are some national media members who understand Notre Dame well, and there are some that I would describe as less informed. Um, but I think the importance of independence isn't always understood at a national level. I think some people do get that, but some people don't. Um, so that is something that I think can sometimes be misconstrued. And uh, I think, I mean, you, I mean, if you want to like go back to Rick Riley calling Notre Dame irrelevant, <laughs> um, like that's that's just obviously not a not a good viewpoint. But I obviously don't know that like saying that column from Rick Riley is fair to pin on the national media as a whole. That was just a bad, bad uh, uh, column that uh, was, uh, was not, uh, was not very relevant in fact. So um, I think that uh, there's a number of different things uh, that national media members may not always be on target with, but um, I think for the most part, I think it, and I think the national media in certain areas is getting better at, 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 at having a better sense for that and, and knowing what makes Notre Dame work the way it does. All right. Next question we have is from our old pal, Michael Birch at Steelers PR Mike. And I, this question is clearly just to troll me um, who is a Cleveland Indians fan. Why do you throw a breaking ball on an O2 pitch to a two fourteen hitter in the ninth inning of a perfect game? My answer would be because you would feel like that particular batter could get his foot out of the way on a pitch <laughs> that slow uh, coming at him and instead just let it hit him so he would ruin the perfect game. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know that Birch uh, – I think I actually was texting with him uh, yesterday during the the Indians-Sox uh, game, and uh, he was uh, – he was – uh, bemoaning how bad their team is. And then of course they beat the white Sox, anyways. Um, so I, I'm not uh, in terms of the actual question, I, I'm not going to question the guy who was one pitch away from a no hitter. Um, I also don't, I don't have a problem with Roberto Perez, not really jumping out of the way for that. It, um, it, it's not like, it's not like he leaned over the plate or anything. The ball the ball hit his foot. Um but I mean the the pitch selection. I mean the slider is kind of Carlos Rodon's uh, um, the pitch that kind of got him a lot of attention, even coming back in his uh, um, prospect days. So um, and he actually had it's funny the the two previous outs before he hit the batter, he threw o two sliders, uh, one for a strikeout and one for a ground out. So he it was working, but not not on that instance. Uh, so that, that was a shame, but it was still cool to see. I'm glad he got the no hitter because if he didn't get the no hitter after that, that would have been really, that would have been a really bad deal, but I've been pretty, uh, pretty fortunate as a White Sox fan that there's five no hitters now that I know for sure that I've watched. Uh, I, I don't think I watched, uh, uh, Wilson Alvarez when I was six or seven, but I, I have all the, the one, the five cents that I, I, I definitely was watching for. And question, go ahead. I watched Wilson Alvarez. All right. I can remember when he got traded. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and the last question we have is from Brendan at Very Piratey. In honor of Boston College's new apparel deal, how many pairs of New Balance shoes has Eric bought in his lifetime? 
And what hashtag dad life activity best signifies springtime? What what would your guess be in terms of the new balance question? How many new balance? I'm going to guess zero. The answer is zero. <laughs> um, I know people that have new balance and they're good people. Um, my go-to shoes are Asics gel Nimbus. I buy the top of the line. I'm telling you, especially if you're a bigger guy like me, it makes such a difference on your joints and your leg muscles. It's stunning how well constructed those shoes are. Now, Asics send me some free shoes. Um, <laughs> as far Asics, as, Asics sponsored the podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, as far as dad activity, I wasn't sure if it was like a physical activity or a fun activity. I put grilling out, you know, I, I grill some in the winter, you know, I'm judicious about when I feel like that, that makes sense. Um, but the springtime, I, I put the broiler pan away for the rest of the, you know, until the snow comes and I'm grilling almost every day. So, uh, that would be it. If it were, Something a little bit more physical. It's getting um, wrestled by my grandchildren, which <laughs> is something that I haven't been able to do in over in a year. But three of them came over um, last weekend, and they absolutely pummeled me. <laughs> I, 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 so I've definitely had more pairs of New Balance shoes than you have. Um, there was like there was a there was a time when I was in high school that like. New Balance had these like cooler, like casual shoes and they were, they kind of became in vogue. I don't know that I ever had those, um, but I did have, the funny thing is when I went to DePaul um, as to play football as a freshman, uh, there are, our, our, our uh, apparel was New Balance. And so I, I still have a New Balance sweatshirt. I have some New Balance socks. They had really soft socks. I don't know why, um, but my first, so my college football cleats were New Balance. Um, I had a pair of, um, I don't think I ever bought any New Balance shoes um, from from DePaul, but I, I so I don't know that I ever had any true shoes. I guess, I guess I'm not sure, but I definitely had New Balance cleats, um, and I, I I think they gave us New Balance shoes with that as well. But I don't remember those as well. They weren't they weren't they weren't as notable. <laughs> Seeing New Balance cleats were kind of funny, but they weren't that bad. I didn't have that that many issues with them, and um, but having New Balance. Uh, all kinds of apparel, sweatpants and sweatshirts. And we had these really awful, uh, well, we didn't have them because I didn't play the next year, but the sophomore year, they, they were still with New Balance. Had these really awful, like silver tracks jumpsuits were like pants and, uh, and uh, track jackets. And they were shiny. And they look, to me, they looked like you were like, uh, uh, like going to space or something like that. <laughs> they, were, they were very strange. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I'm interested to see what uh, Boston College does with with New Balance and how if uh, New Balance is on the world on the route to a uh, world domination in the college football market with their with their deal with Boston College. I will add my first pair of athletic shoes ever. I begged my mom for them. You had basically three choices: you had Keds, you had Converse, and PF Flyers. And man, did I want PF Flyers! I begged for those, and I got them. <laughs> I've never owned any PF Flyers, but they are a critical part of the story of the Sandlot. So I appreciate the PF Flyers. I think I want to say I think Scott Daly showed up to an interview session one time at Notre Dame wearing PF Flyers, and I think he was pretty proud of those. So and I, I took note of that because uh, Benny the Jet wore PF Flyers as well. 
All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week for another episode. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame spring football coverage needs. Mm-hmm.